Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be continuing our look at The Future is Female, 25 classic science fiction stories by women, uh, edited by Lisa Yazak. In the previous two episodes, we looked at stories from the period from 1928 to 1952. So these stories, I think there's six of them in this selection, uh, right at the, the middle of the volume. We'll be doing five episodes overall. This are these are from 1953 to 1958, uh, so right in the center of the golden era of science fiction. So um, now many of these stories we've perhaps heard of before, or if you're familiar with science fiction, you've you've come across. I don't think I've I've actually read any of these before, but they'll. Um, I, I searched around a little bit for them. They seem to be a little famous. Um, they're, they're all kind of interesting. And, and unlike the last set, which didn't have a lot to say about gender, these are much more conscious of, of gender uh, issues and some of the things I was really expecting to see when I picked up this, this volume. All right, let's just jump into them because there, there are quite a few here. Um, the first is Ararat by Zena Henderson. Uh, this was originally published in... 1952 in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Um, this is, I think this is the first story in the people stories that Zena Henderson is perhaps most famous for. And um, in fact, uh, in the credit for this, it says also reprinted in the, the complete people stories. So, you know, these are kind of crammed together as an overall story, all, all about this group of aliens that, that sort of look like, they basically look like people. But they're aliens, and they've, they've come to Earth. And so we'll get to their history. Their history is described here. They live in this Cougar Canyon, and they've kind of been spread out too, so they're a bit of a diaspora. They're a diaspora of these aliens who have come to Earth, but they're, they're hiding out, and they're trying to keep their identity secret. And they all have, they're all like got special powers, or sort of, which is kind of normal for these aliens, but of course it would set them apart from... from the humans. So in this way, it kind of takes the alien invasion story, but instead they're alien refugees. And instead of human mutants, you just have aliens with these abilities. But as with many of the mutant stories, you have the theme of people hiding their abilities or trying to integrate into into a, a normal society. In this case, they don't. In this case, the people uh, live on the, you know, hiding out largely. Um, now, this particular story is mostly about them bringing in this teacher they, they seem to have trouble getting teachers to come to this community largely because they prefer old dying people who you know aren't gonna ever go out and give away their secrets or whatever and they they bring in this teacher whose name is uh, what's her name she's got a weird name valancy carmody miss carmody is her name right and and the whole plot revolves around her falling in love or with one of the the people uh, a boy and uh, a young man and that romance right becomes a problem in terms of their they're trying to hide out right and try to keep their abilities but it's revealed at the end that 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 uh Valancy is also one of the people and she's been she's been similarly kind of hiding out 
and but she's part of this broader diaspora of, of the people. Now, I was sort of most interested in the, the history of the, the people, and, and she's, she wrote like 30 stories about the, the, about the people that kind of trace their whole history from the beginning to the end. We don't obviously don't have that here. We just got tastes of it. Um, but, you know, it, it seems it was in the 19th century at some point that these people came to Earth. And that's, of course, a time of, of immigration, right? And for me, this story seems almost a, a counter narrative to maybe the melting pot mythology of America, right? Or the, the, the overall narrative of, of assimilation, right? America has been uh, a country of immigrants. And immigrants, to various degrees, you know, assimilated or hid their identities or, or in some cases passed. If we're thinking like the Great Migration, we can even go back to our... The, the stories about um, the Harlem Renaissance, or we read and Charles Chestnut and these people, where we read a lot of stories about passing, or about people, you know, trying to be something they weren't by leaving. Um, it seems that these people didn't go on, on purpose, so they're not conscious immigrants the way a lot of those people were. But still, the the struggle between being who you are and trying to fit into into the majoritarian culture, I think, is a is a common enough American story, and I think that's one thing that makes this story give the story some legs. Um, but here, we just get a little taste of the history of the people here. Um, quote, you see, when the crossing was made, the people got separated in that last wild moment when air was screaming past and heat was building up so alarmingly. The members of our group left their ship just seconds before it crashed so devastatingly into the box canyon behind Old Baldy and literally splashed and drove itself into the canyon walls, starting fire that stripped the halls bare for miles. After the people gathered themselves together uh, from the life slips and found a cougar canyon they found that the alloy the ship was made of was a metal much wanted here our group had lived on mining the box canyon ever since though there's something complicated about marketing the stuff it has to be shipped out of the country and shipped into areas again be shipped in again because everyone knows that it doesn't occur in this region anyways our group in cougar canyon is probably the largest of the people but we're reasonably sure at least one other group and maybe two survived along with us Grandmother in her time sends two groups, but could never locate them exactly. Unquote. So that's kind of as much as we get about their history, but we know they're spread out around Earth. We know they have various powers, like they levitate, they have telekinetic powers. Um, we know that they're kind of hiding out. What I don't quite understand about this is why they couldn't just say, whoa, look, we found some ore or something. They, they, they have to kind of fake that it didn't come there originally. People are always finding new mining deposits, right? Couldn't they just said, ah, this rare mineral just happens to be in our in this canyon. But anyways, that, that's the history. And I, I think it's a really, really interesting um, setup, uh, a way of dealing with the aliens living on Earth uh, dimension, but also combining it with the mutant stuff we've been talking about, certainly in the Philip Dick stuff. And it's come up a few times in, in this little series as well. Now, this um, Valancey, this teacher, brings in some knowledge about hiding out that the people maybe didn't have because they lived in a group. And they were much more conscious of their abilities. They used their abilities with each other. But this, this woman who has lived with humans her whole life and has had to hide out her whole life, not knowing the whole history of, of really who she is or, or all that, has you know, entered in. And this is what um, Henderson writes about them. And then I knew that Valancey, Valancey who had wrapped herself so tightly against the world to which any thoughtless act might betray her, that she had lived with us all this time without our knowing about her or who she is, was one of us. 
not only was one of us, but such a one that has not been seen since grandmother died, and even beyond that, my incoherent thoughts cleared to no one. Now I would have someone to train me. Now I could become a sorter, but only second to her. I don't know. There's there's not too much maybe to say about this story. I think maybe if I were to read more of the people's stories, I could maybe put it into a larger context. But for me, the most interesting things are the overall story of the people and how it reflects maybe the American experience uh, of, of ethnicities trying to survive in in this melting pot. Um, I, 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 again, think it... it really parallels interestingly the mutant stories in, a, in an interesting way in that it's the powers that give these people away it's not their it's not how they look um, and that's the one thing they need to hide and that that of course comes up a lot in the mutant stories um, now the whole love affair angle is is a bit undercut by the fact that at the end it's revealed she's one of the people so there's no threat there's no danger there's no taboo involved in this burgeoning romance but early in the story it was kind of seen as this is kind of a bad idea it's something that may help expose us but uh in the end it turns out that she's just one of the people that's why she's able to sort of block her thoughts from from the others um it's something they noticed pretty early when encountering this teacher is that she wasn't quite like the other quote-unquote outsiders that they've they've met um but yeah i think as a little story of cultures trying to survive with their distinct identity is so such a big issue today. I mean, we're losing languages every day. We're losing cultures every every day um, in much of the world. There's something like 200 states, but thousands of languages, right? So how can all these languages survive an era of, of cultural homogenization, of, of public education that seeks, in many cases, to eradicate this difference when you have Bolsonaro in Brazil, who's actively waging war against the people of the Amazon and, and, and trying to obliterate that diversity. You have all of these um, challenges to cultural diversity. Um, and certainly the story of America is one of some sort of melting pot. I mean, for certain groups anyways. But, you know, even groups that were scorned and, and treated not too well in the end of the 19th century have more or less been assimilated into into white American culture. And it's one of the conclusions of whiteness studies, uh, of course, and the people who study the history of race in America. You know, it's like if you're Polish-American, you know, Polish identity has some meaning, but it's not like central to your life the same way it would have been maybe a few hundred years ago. Um, you know, and I also thought a lot about passing because that, that's that there are stronger uh, racial divides in my country than than ethnic divides, I would say. Um, and and there you do have cases of, you know, pe people trying to pass and try to keep their identity secret because to give up this new identity, to, to be stick with the identity you have from birth, you know, is it would be devastating for your life. And, and we read a wonderful story about that called The House Behind the Cedars uh, when I back did the Charles Chestnut series. One of my favorite series, by the way, to do was Charles Chestnut's. Um, all right, that's it um, for that one. Next we have Andrew North. All cats are gray. This is a it's, a, it's quite a little it's quite a short story. Um, published in Fantastic Universe, the second issue of Fantastic Fantastic Universe. I'm assuming that's a short-lived magazine. I don't don't remember seeing that name too often. Um, also, 1950. No, this one's 1953. Uh, Error was 1952. 
Um, so this just has a really, really fascinating character uh, named Stena. And the location is really kind of interesting, too. Um, basically, it's like um, she hangs out with the pirates and the salvage yards. And, and she's just someone who she's like a mainstay in these kind of salvage yard communities. And she becomes by being in that position, she becomes a conduit of knowledge. She's the person who can kind of sell you knowledge about where a wreck might be or where there might be a score. Um, first of all, I find that whole thing fascinating if we do develop a... I mean, we have that now on Earth, right? We have people who, who filter through garbage. We have people who, who try to salvage um, broken down cars and things for parts. Uh, we have people... We, there's even people seeking like Spanish treasure gold still. So there, that exists. But in space, you know, you're obviously going to have that, right? Um, uh, if we ever get to that that stage, you're going to have people who are able to benefit from that. I mean, think of all the space junk that just exists now floating around Earth. I mean, there's people who are concerned that this may even stop exploration of space someday. Neil Stevenson wrote a, a novel that deals with that theme a little bit. Um, 70s, I think it is. I haven't read it yet. I just know it touches on that issue. So this Stena character is like someone who's becomes a conduit of knowledge of sorts. This is our description of her. Stena of the Speedways. That sounds like a corny title for one of the Stellar Veto spreads. I, I ought to know. I tried my hand at writing enough of them. Only this Stena was no glamour babe. She was as colorless as a lunar planet plant. Even her hair netted down to her skull as a sort of grayish cast. I never saw her but one, but one draped in anything but a shapeless and baggy gray space all. Stena was strictly background stuff, and that is where she spent most of her free hours, in the smelly, smoky backroom corners of any stellar port die frequent by space flyers. If you really looked for her, you could spot her just sitting there listening to the talk, listening and remembering. She didn't open her own mouth often, but when she did, spacers had learned to listen. And the f lucky few who heard her rare spoken words, they will never forget Stena. She drifted from port to port. Being an expert operator on the big calculator, she found jobs wherever she cared to stay for a time, and she came to be something of a master-minded machine she tended, smooth gray without much personality of her own. Now, that's her character, so always dressed in gray. It turns out she's colorblind. It becomes a very plot point, plot point later on that she's colorblind. Um, but what she's really sort of famous for and where she's kind of been elevated to the legend of myth is that she, quote, cracked the case of the Empress of Mars, which was one of these salvage operations, right? Normally, it seems she's passing on this information to, to others. Like uh, she gives this guy Bud Nelson a story, you know, who's able to get rich off some score that she was able to talk about. But she was involved in this salvage of this Empress of, of Mars ship. And so most of the story then is the back is the story in which she cracked the case of the Empress of Mars. Okay, so when she's on this mission, she has this she's with this guy Cliff, and she has this cat named Bat, right? And they're in the ship and they're trying to solve, you know, what did it, they're trying to salvage the ship, and the cat basically starts to freak out, bar, you know, at some place. And Stena is able to identify what it is. Maybe not as clearly as the cat, but because she's also colorblind like the cat, she's able to see this creature that's kind of exists in a different um, spectrum of sight. Like I think it's either an ultraviolet or infrared. And so because she's colorblind, she's able to see that while normal people can't, right? So it's basically an invisible monster that destroyed the crew. And she's able to find it and, and kill it with the help of her cat. 
So essentially, he, we have here a story of a kind of a legend of the spaceports. Um, you know, kind of a bit of a mysterious figure. It's, it's suggested at the end that she sort of disappeared at some point. She 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 gets she after the score of the Empress of Mars, she wears this red cloak instead of the gray cloak and goes off to marry the cliff guy. But uh, you know, for a while, she was a bit of a just an interesting kind of part of that spaceport culture, and, and that's what struck me about the story. I also think the the special relationship she has with this cat and how both of them are colorblind, which allows them to see a threat. I, I think the idea of a, of a creature existing in a visible, you know, wavelength, that would be different from what we're used to, because we, of course, evolved to see light from our sun, right? So other stars, you know, creatures would have, there would evolve to see light that, is this fits the spectrum of, of their star right and you know i don't quite know the the physics or the biology of this why we see still limited spectrum but the idea that some people can see a little bit beyond that and that would then allow them to to see threats or there might be creatures that that could exist in the, those wavelengths is or their skin color would match those wavelengths it's kind of cool it's, it's kind of interesting again I, I don't know the how much the science of that fits but it's it seems to be a good idea to me but again, what I love about this story is just the the the, the type of um, the, who Stena is and what she sort of represents in this this spaceport kind of world. And you know, I think in my wildest fantasy, spaceports must have these types of figures hanging around. Um, this one apparently is public domain, and there is an audiobook version of it. It's only about 18 minutes long. You can find that. I think it's on YouTube right now. All right. Um, next, Eleanor or Alice Eleanor Jones. Alice Eleanor Jones created He Them. This story was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in June 1955. Now, this is, is a very, very good this story is a very, very good critique of, of gender roles. And it combines traditional middle-class 1950s gender roles and the critique of those gender roles and, and kind of the, the role of women in those years. The, um, the June Cleaver, that's what I'm thinking of. The June Cleaver kind of archetype of, of the stay-at-home mom who wakes up early, makes breakfast, makes lunch, is... You know, take, watching the kids, being the moral presence in the house while the dad's off at work. That, that, that archetype is still there, but it's put in a post-apocalyptic, a post-nuclear war environment in which you have a state desperately trying to rebuild the population, desperately trying to, to endure in the aftermath of the war. All resources are committed to that effort, even the mobilization of women. But the women aren't mobilized in a radical way. The way you find, like maybe during the U.S. Civil War or during the First and Second World War in Britain and the United States or in the Soviet Union where women were full on board the war effort, where they were put in uniform or given jobs in the front or, uh, you know, as nurses or given jobs in the bureaucracy. All these things happened in those total war environments. Here, the, the, the use of women is still to raise kids and it still raises them in that kind of typical bougie family. 
Um, but the difference is kids, once they reach a certain age, are taken away from these parents and sent off to be raised by the state. So um, I found that a little bit unbelievable. I would imagine there'd be a better use of women's time if there is this desperate effort to, to get society back on its feet after a war. But as a critique of, of middle class uh, gender relations and the suggestion that these gender relations are so powerful or these gender norms are so powerful that even a nuclear war cannot break them down entirely is a wonderful, wonderful idea. And certainly one of the, um, the strongest idea in this story, to be sure. Now, one thing we learn is that although this 1950s ideal mother archetype is remaining very powerful, Everything about it's broken down. I mean, there's dust everywhere. The machinery is breaking down. Um, the electric lights go in and out. They're always brownouts. Um, you know, she she can't really run the washing machine very well. So all the things that that made that domestic life easier, <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. So it's all that more drudgery, right? I, I I certainly must have talked about this in the Philip K. Dick review series that, uh, that I did. You know that because it came up a lot in the stories is because Dick was such a technophobe, and I think he was kind of a bit blinkered by how much technology did liberate mostly women from a lot of household labor um, by you know like the washing machine. I mean, what a liberatory technology the washing machine is. Vacuum cleaner, I don't know how much that saves, but you know some of these domestic technologies really do. Uh, certainly free women from out of work, right? Like the stove, I mean, the gas stove, you don't have to haul in coal or haul in wood to cook dinners, right? And you have to start fires. It's just, you got to flip a switch. You know, it's still unfortunate that women's work is associated with cooking, but if you're going to have to do it anyways, it's better to do it with technology that makes that a lot easier, right? And I think this story is aware of that because, um, or Jones here is aware of that because she emphasizes just how much worse this is because of everything breaking down around her. And while the rest of the world seems to be improving a little bit, the household economy remains apparently the most degraded part. It's, it's what the state is not focusing on improving very much. The signs that things are getting better are... You know, I guess it's relative, but uh, we got a, a nice passage towards the middle of the story, actually towards the end. You know, it's not a very long story to begin with, but uh, suggesting a little bit how things are going. Quote, she turned on the battery radio to the one station that was broadcasting these days, the one at the center. The news report was the usual thing. The director was in good health and bearing the burden of his duties with fortitude. Conditions throughout the country were normal. Crops had not been quite so good as hoped, but that was not a clause for alarm. Quotas in light and heavy industry were good, and smelled wryly, but could be improved if every worker did his duty. Road repairs were picking up, and wondered when they're going to run the street again. And electric service was normal, except for the few scattered areas where there might be small, temporary difficulties. The lamp had begun to smoke again, and Anne turned it lower. The stock market had closed off irregular, with rails down an average of two points and stocks off three. So yeah, the story is that things are getting better, but from her point of view, nothing's really improving, right? Yeah, maybe they're fixing up the roads, but they're not fixing up my roads. Yeah, maybe electrical power is more regular, but not at my house where it's, it hasn't been light, lit, light for three days, right? Now, all this just gives you the sign of just the daily drudgery and horror of this kind of work, which I think for male audiences reading this story at the time may have been a much needed um, wake-up call. 
Um, but really, the really devastating moment in the story, of course, is when it's revealed that the children that these women are raising are going to be taken away um, at some point. Um, you know, and there's nothing she can do about it, right? As much as she loves these children, as much as they're a part of her life, and where she put her blood, sweat, and tears, they're just going to be taken away. Um, here's how the story ends. I can't kill you, Henry, or myself. I cannot even wish us dead. In this desolate, dying, bound-out world with its creeping wastelands and its freakish seasons, with its limping economy and its arrogant center in the country that takes our children, children like ours and others it destroys, we have to live. We have to live together. Because of a twist of providence or radiation or genes, we are among the tiny percentage of people in this world who can have normal children. We hate each other, but we breed true. End quote. Right? So now we even add kind of the almost the Handmaid's Tale kind of narrative, or I'm reminded of that Only a Mother story by Judith Merrill. Both of these show, you know, a world of declining population because of radiation. And so these people are forced together in this bourgeois life just to basically be breeders, right? And um, it's not clear how widespread this is. It's just, it's just the breeders who live like this. Everyone else is basically slaves to the state that's using the rebuilding effort to justify their their tyranny. Um, I don't know, but certainly for this woman, right, her life is a kind of domestic slavery, and that, that's what this story is about. It's very, very good, very, very good. I, I, uh, one of the best in this collection, in my opinion. All right, next we have actually two, the next two stories are both about race. And, of course, that's another major theme going on in the 1950s is we have the Brown versus Board of Education decision. We have the conversation about segregation. We have a, a emboldened African-American community throughout the United States, especially in the South, that uh, came back from World War II um, claiming they were fighting for double victory, victory against fascism abroad and victory against Jim Crow at home. So these movements pick up after the war. And so race was certainly on the national consciousness in, in the 50s, especially this division in America between the Jim Crow states and the, and the non-Jim Crow states. And many science fiction writers talked about this. Even Philip Dick had his own stories on this. And race is a, is a common theme in science fiction. Um, you can always... There's easy, easy things you can do with aliens to just kind of talk about race through an alien invasion story or something like that. Um, now, the first of these is Mildred Klingerman's Mr. Sacrison's Halt. This is in the magazine of science fiction, of fantasy and science fiction as well, just like uh, created he, them, published in 1956. Um, later collected in the Klingerman file. So I guess that's an anthology of, of Mildred Klingerman's uh, writings. Um, this story is very, very short. It's, what, 10 pages? Or, or so, not, not very long at all. And basically, I, I think we're introduced to someone who is, I'm a, is it a, I think it's a black woman, because I think they're in the Jim Crow car. Yeah, she's in the Jim Crow car, and there's this white woman who's like kind of always hanging around the Jim Crow car, often in the Jim Crow train car. And, you know, most, then, then we get the kind of the flashback explaining why is she there, What's her background story? And um, I think this character, the narrator, actually asked her, like, what happened to you? And then this woman, who's Miss Maddie, tells her story. So this is Miss Maddie, who every week is riding the Jim Crow car. It turns out she's looking for someone, or she's looking for something she's lost in her life. 
but she always will tell this story. And the story is essentially that she fell in love with a, a, a Yankee, a northern man who's kind of a liberal, at least a racial liberal. She is not odiously racist, but she's got prejudice and she kind of carries with her uh, racial prejudices into her life. But she falls in love with this um, northern liberal and at one point they go into this uh, kind of a, a, an unexpected mysterious stop um, and he gets out and and here it's it's like it's kind of the desegregated ideal I guess is the way you might want to describe it it's a place where segregation no longer exists um, and Mrs. Maddie is unable to make the stop because she hesitates due to kind of her racial anxieties or kind of under the surface prejudice and the train leaves with her on it leaving her lover this mr sackerson behind yeah, on this in the city and they're never able to meet again so that's what miss maddie's looking for is she's constantly searching for this lost love this is actually more of a fantasy than a science fiction story i don't, I don't see any evidence that it is it's, it's more of a fairy tale actually about racial it's even, for instance, suggested that the name of the town is Brotherhood. Uh, this is what Mrs. Maddie said. I was looking back, you know, and I tried to reach the emergency cord and weeping. I saw the first few letters on the station sign. It said B-R-O something. In the city, I waited and waited, but Mr. Sackerson didn't come. They told me on that the only halt between Chapel Grove and the city that had the letters B-R-O was Brokaw. I hired a buggy and drove back there, but it was only a tumble-down old halt without a station house. Just one of those sheltered seats. Miss Maddie always stopped at this point, and she did now. Again, we murmured over all the pleasant names we could think of that the halt might have possessed. As usual, Miss Matthew argued strongly for a favorite, but I didn't think the word brotherhood was pretty enough. Um, end quote. So that's the suggestion. That's what Miss Maddie thinks it is. So Miss Maddie realizes she's missed her chance, right? Because she's not in the right place of history. That's why I think this story really works more as a fairy tale. It's um, about a population of people who are able to envision and, and see a world beyond racial prejudice and people who, for whatever reason, can't, and the inability of them to get together. And then we got a train, which is kind of the train of history, and it makes a stop at a, a racial utopia that, to most people, they can't even see, much less get off at, right? Or if you can, you can just kind of glimpse it, but you can't get off on it at, at the best. That's the Mrs. Maddie situation, right? Um, the whole thing is kind of preposterous. I mean, Philip Dick sort of played with this uh, with this stuff with the trains and the towns that appear and disappear. There's that story of the commuter. But yeah, that this is um, much, much more of a fairy tale than any science fiction story. That's really just um, playing with uh, this population of people. And she's targeting directly here Southern whites of just being unable to to ever step across to the promised land of, 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 of racial solidarity. But someone like Mr. Sackerson can, right? And that's where maybe the story could be criticized as being a little too optimistic, right? Ignoring the, the true prejudices that existed among Northern liberals at the time. But nevertheless, it's a good story. And it, 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 it gets to um, the heart of, of, of the problem of, of, a huge part of the country really stuck in this Jim Crow thinking, right? So they're never going to be able to get off the train at the right stop. Um, so that's that story. Now, this next story is also about race. 
but it, it, this one is a true science fiction story. It's lay brackets, all the colors of the rainbow. Um, it was published in Venture Science Fiction, uh, the first year of that journal's publication, uh, November 1957. So all the colors of the rainbow is essentially, it, it's a fairly long story, but it's got a simple idea here. And what's going on in this story is you have a bunch, a couple aliens coming to basically investigate the Earth, and particularly they're they're viewing the they're checking out the U.S. South, and the Earth wants to join this federation with these um, space aliens, and they they kind of run it. But the Earth wants to join this federation, um, so these these are bureaucrats. The main characters here are bureaucrats from this federation who are who are touring the, the South in this case, and they're green. They're they're green. Now, much of the world has kind of got much of at least the U.S. in this case, the whole thing is set in the U.S. I don't know about the rest of the world, but it suggests that much of the world has gotten beyond racial prejudice. But this one town or this one region that these guys go to is still very prejudiced. And the story behind it is a little bit preposterous, but it allows basically what we have here is an enclave of, of old racist thought that used to be targeting black people, of course, but when the black people left that community, that prejudice remained, right? And these green aliens come in, and then they get tr treated with scorn, even violently assaulted at one point. You know, even though they're, they're aliens, they're called green, the N-word, the N-word's used here to describe them. Um, young people call it, old people all kind of share this prejudice. The whole community does. Now, what I think Lay Brackett's point here, as far as I can decipher it out, is simply that, you know, well, it seems to me that the point is that racial discrimination can endure despite the presence of the racial other in a location, right? Um, and I, I think that's certainly true. I think I live in China, as you probably know, and I certainly do think that that prejudice towards certain groups exist, even if those groups aren't a huge part of the population. Or more close to home, we can pick up a book like uh, uh, Rodiger's The Wages of Whiteness, a, a book of labor history, which is really about the working class white culture in America. And as that book starts out, it's about, a, you know, the author, I think, was raised in the Midwest. And he says, like, we didn't have any black people in our town, but we still made racist comments and and played racist games, and that was just part of our culture of, of, of youth, right? At the time, then, America was fighting against Jim Crow segregation in the South. Young people, even in the North, were, were being filled with, with, with racist ideology, right? Just through their local working class cultures. Um, the book goes into a lot more detail about the origin of all that, and it's, it's a really great, um, thin book that you should read if you're interested in that question of whiteness. But yeah, certainly I think there's plenty of evidence that you don't need a present racial other for racial um, ideolo racist ideology to emerge. Now there's other levels of discrimination revealed in the story. For instance, we have a little bit of, of, of kind of religious discrimination. So at one point, when you essentially have a mob accosting these, these aliens, 
They're asked, like, do you even consider yourself human? And they reply, on our own worlds, we consider ourselves so. However, I'm not prepared to argue it from your viewpoint, sir. Well, and then the guy says, well, now, what I want to know is how you can call yourself human when it says right in the scriptures that God created this good earth under my feet and then created man, human man, right out of that same self-earth. You know, um, so that's, that's a different layer, I guess, of this prejudice against them, but... Um, now we get the history of how this appeared because this is an all-white town, essentially. And this history is a bit unbelievable, but maybe it's reflecting things like the Great Migration and and the the flight of of black people from the South during World War II. I don't know, but here's how the explanation that the one guy gives. What I mean is, this here is a white town. In most other places nowadays, I understand you'll find blacks and whites all run together like they were out of the same still. We got a different kind of situation here, and we ain't the only ones either. There's little pockets of us here and there, kind of holding out, you might say. We ain't broken any laws. We didn't refuse to integrate, see? Thus, it was just for one reason or another that colored folks, they were around, decided they could do better somewhere else, and went there. So we didn't need to integrate. We don't have any color problem. We ain't had any for 20 years. And what's more, we don't want any. Um, so a lot to kind of unpack there. One is you do have the implication that integration is going to create racial like solidarity between the races and, and and discrimination. I don't know if that's true. I mean, slavery was an integrated system, blacks and whites working together, uh, living in close proximity, um, yet certainly based on racial oppression. Um, yeah, so I'm not convinced about that. But that's we're in the 1950s, right? In the 1950s, this was a common dream of, of people. Another thing we have here is this discussion of resistance to integration, right? They, they deny, this community denies being part of that resistance to, to, to desegregation. But remember, there was significant resistance, right? People in Virginia stopped sending their kids to schools. We had... Uh, schools refusing to follow court order so you know the military had to be brought in there was a lot there was a lot of the southern manifesto where southern politicians got together and wrote a document saying pretty blatantly we refuse to integrate so there's a whole lot of this resistance it really was a real thing right um, and i wonder what people looking back those communities that resisted now how they look back at their own history and i'm not from that part of the country but how they how do they now look back at that period of time? Do they deny it or do they, you know, maybe there's another explanation. That's my third thing I want to say about this interesting passage is that maybe this is false history. Maybe uh, there was a race riot that happened in the South. Uh, maybe there were other reasons this this town is is all white now that that that, that isn't being told truthfully here to these aliens. So this incident eventually, you know, they get away and stuff, but this incident puts the U.S. or the world, sorry, the Earth's membership into this federation at risk. And, you know, the Earth at this point isn't a member of that federation, so it's not subject to its loss. There's no way that these aliens can punish um, Earth for what happened to them. But the implication is that Earth isn't quite ready for, for membership into the federation. All right, now on to the last story. Carol Emschwiller's Pelt, Pelt, P-E-L-T. It's um, also the magazine of fantasy and science fiction uh, from 1958. Now, this story really, really blew me away when I read it. Um, 
it's the main character actually the point of view character is a dog so it's kind of like call of the wild in that way or you know in that it's trying to be in the mind of a dog but while in call of the wild you have a dog who's domesticated who finds freedom in the wilderness this dog doesn't find freedom but the dog is encouraged to find freedom and i think that's what's really powerful about this um so basically this dog is hunting with his master or her master it's a she um, on this planet called Jaxa uh, at wintertime. And she's so happy there. I mean, the smells are, are new. Uh, I'll just read it. She trotted well ahead of her master, sometimes nose to a ground, sometimes sniffing the air. And she didn't care if they were being watched or not. She knew that strange things skulked behind the ice trees, but strangeness was her job. She had been trained for it, and crisp, glittering Jaxa was, she felt, exactly what she had been trained for and born for. I love it. I love it. That was in her pointing ears, her waving tail. I love this place. It was a world of ice, a world with the sound of breaking goblets. Every time the wind blew, there came a shattering down by a trayful, and each time one branch brushed against another, it was skull, down to the hatch, to the queen, tink, tink, tink. And the sun was reflected as if from a million glass-cut punch bowls under a million crystal chandeliers. End quote. That's, so it's kind of a beautiful um, description here, and it's it's we, this dog's in paradise, right? But she's there to basically help her master hunt. Now, fairly early in the story, while she's hunting, uh, she gets a, a, basically a telepathic message from some of the creatures that live there. And that's what we find out. We find out that basically they're hunting these creatures with fur. You know, they, I guess the, the, there's no fur on her hands and, and head. That's an important plot point later on there's no fur on the hands or face but the rest of the body has a pelt and so that's what they're being hunted but they're sentient beings they're they're, they're clearly sentient at one point one's holding a bag they can really clearly communicate they can communicate to the dog telepathically and here's the what what one says to this dog we have watched you little slave what have you done that is free today take the liberty here is the earth uh, uh, for your four shoot feet the sky of stars, the ice and the ice to drink. Do something free today. Do, do, end quote. This seems to be the ideology, the values of these aliens is, is freedom, right? Um, they don't kill the hunter. The hunter's killing them, but they don't kill him. Instead, their main goal seems to be in liberating this dog and freeing this dog from its slavery. It's called a slave. It's encouraged to do something free, um, not just simply be the servant of this brutal man now eventually they do hunt a pelt um, and he cuts off the hands and, and head because those aren't as valuable because they don't have the pelt um, now what the creatures do do is somehow they they restore these parts to the the sack that he takes onto a ship so he can't forget he can't forget that he killed essentially sentient creatures that although alien were um, you know had minds and consciousness but what is really amazing here is that what they cared about most was freeing this dog. And they actually reach out to this dog a few other times in the story, trying to encourage it to, to live free. And for that, that freedom being like to live on this planet and enjoy what it loves, this place that it's fallen in love with. Um, but it can't. It's too trained. It's, uh, it's too loyal to its master. It can't break free of its training. Right? And it's, it's just such a great... Um, conversation about the roadblocks to freedom, I think. And, and that's what I love about this particular story. Um, many of us 
hopefully not anyone listening, you know, but do horrible things in our job, whether it's participate in the destruction of our ecosystem um, or the exploitation of, of workers or, you know, we, we rely on cheap labor from abroad. All of us as consumers, you know, rely on the exploitation of, of cheap foreign labor. We do things that are pretty horrible in our day-to-day lives, right? And at some level, we know true freedom means moving beyond that, right? But we can't break free for whatever reason, right? Sometimes it's ideological. Sometimes it's our training. Sometimes it's we can't leave our comfort zone or whatever. But that that call for freedom is, is always there. And there are some people who are able to make that call and maybe articulate it more. But... Uh, most of us are kept back for some reason. And that's, that's the situation of this, this poor dog. Um, in fact, at the end, she, the dog, she's so conflicted because she wants, she does want this freedom. She does want to go on this planet, but at the same time, she wants her, like, her brain almost cross circuits because she can't, she wants to make both sides happy, right? That's her training. Her training is to make everyone happy, to not cause them trouble. Uh, the way Urschweller um, writes it, I do want to do what's right to please everybody, everybody, but then she followed the master into the ship. The locks rumbled shut. Let's get out of here, he said. He took her place, flat on her side, takeoff position. The master snapped the flat plastic sheet over her, covering head and all. In a few minutes, they roared off. Um, now, the end of the story is, again, from the dog's point of view, but she sees the master open up the bag and see the big head and the hands we can evidence that these were not um that these were sentient creatures right the hands because it was holding a bag and the face because it does have a face that looks to be not that of an animal um and the dog you know remembers that face as something that reached out to him and and touched him touched her sorry reached out to her and touched her so a really really wonderful story uh, you know again we got a nice animal story which is always nice to have and it's fairly rare in science fiction and in fiction in general that we get a really well done perspective um, from a dog but it i think it's just and you can look at it as against against hunting against you know hunting for furs that's certainly there too i think this author does not think much of the the hunting of for furs but I think deeper than that, it's about the opportunity, uh, how, f- how close freedom may seem, but how far it really is away from us because of our, you know, our training, our, our habits, you know, the challenge that that poses, that it's always easier to follow orders. It's easier to do what's expected of you. And that's um, the dog's um, ultimate choice. Um, so anyways, that's, that's it for these, ep- uh, the, the, the stories in this part of the volume. Um, again, I do urge you to, to check out this volume, The Future is Female. Um, great stories. And again, 25 of them. It's, it's really um, a nice collection put together by the Library of America. I only wish they put more and did it as a regular series. Um, I'm not quite sure why they, they didn't. Um, if, but if you need a cheaper option, I think uh, the... Women of Wonder is you can get is an older anthology, and that's I talked about that in the last episode. There's two volumes of that, and that's available fairly cheaply on Amazon off the used market. Um, but I think it's good we're 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 focusing a little bit more on these women science fiction writers because they they don't get all the the attention that that 
they deserve. I think that's part of Lisa Yazik's point in her introduction to this wonderful anthology, is in that she's saying that these women weren't, they just, it wasn't just that they happened to be women writers, that it's that they were actually contributing things collectively to the field that wouldn't have been there otherwise. You know, whether it's the gender issues, issues of sexuality, issues of motherhood, issues of certain emotional things or relationship things. These are things that are consciously added by these women writers that, again, wouldn't have been there if, if men had continued to dominate the field. Um, so anyways, next episode, I think it's the, it'll be the most stories because a lot of them are quite short, but I'm still sticking with the 100 pages model. Um, but we'll have seven of them. Carpool. Oh, these will all cover the years 1959 to 1966. Uh, so we're getting into the new wave science fiction. So we're going to start getting with sexuality issues a lot more. We can expect a little bit uh, more trippy stuff, I'm sure. But um, Okay, first Carpool, 1959 by Rosal George Brown. For Sale Reasonable by Elizabeth Mann Borges, 1959. Birth of a Gardener, Doris Pinkett Buck, 1961. The Tunnel Ahead. Alice Glasser, 1961, a population story. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, my thoughts about Malthus. Once again, if you don't know, I'll have to come back to it. Um, Kit Reed, The New You, 1962. John J. Wells and Marion Zimmer Bradley, Another Rib, 1963. That one's really about um, gender and sexuality. Sonia Dorman, When I Was Missed Out, 1966. Another one sort of about that deals with... Uh, um, uh, Transsexual issues, if you will. Um, but yeah, some some fun stuff in that, that collection. So that will be in the next episode. Um, but for now, let me know what you think. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I just got a really nice fan letter. Um, so if you have any thoughts, even if it's just to say hi, you can send it to that email address. Or you can just leave a comment below. Um, that's it. I'll see you next time with the next 100 pages of this anthology. Seven, seven, seven stories by women writers will be the focus of, of the next episode. I will see you then. Thanks for listening. And free